Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we feature a special conversation with Jeannie Sowers, University of New Hampshire, and uh, my colleague in the production of a brand new collection uh, in the Pulmep Studies series, Environmental Politics in the Middle East and North Africa. And then we talk to Mariam Salehi of the Free University of Berlin about her new book on transitional justice in Tunisia. Uh, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's segment, we're joined by Jeannie Sowers, the University of New Hampshire, and my colleague in producing a new collection uh, in the Pull Map Studies series, Environmental Politics in the Middle East and North Africa. Jeannie, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a, a project that we have been talking about for quite some time. You know, my interest in this is really sparked by seeing firsthand the effects of climate change in the Gulf and North Africa across much of the region. But you've been studying the environment in, in the Middle East for a, for a very long time. Not that long, but very long time. And um, you have, a, I think, a lot more perspective on how political science as a discipline has generally treated environmental issues within, um, you know, as they, as they study the region. Could you tell us just a little bit about kind of a broad view of how you experience uh, kind of environmental politics within political science? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that, as you know, um, environmental issues did not figure in much of political science until certainly the 1970s. And at that point, the focus really was on developments in the United States and Europe. And so the field really remained very um, concentrated in those regions and really concentrated on uh, areas of interest that were of importance at that time. So really focused on water pollution and air pollution in specific. what we've seen though over the past couple of decades is, is much more robust development within the field. And I think in saying that it start, it, the field starts in, in Europe and America, that is actually of course also predicated on thinking about what was the English language publication record. But I think the other places that contributed to this in the 80s, especially the 1980s and the 1990s are Latin America and South Asia. So the whole field of subaltern studies in South Asia took very seriously sort of uh, local movements, indigenous movements, particularly like the Chipko movement that was thinking about forestry and forest ownership. And certainly subaltern studies in, in the sort of sense of trying to, to make claims to land and water and soil, especially among marginalized groups, whether they were peasant groups, whether they were um, sort of different lineages and caste groups. Um, I think that was a huge contribution. Um, and when we kind of do the genealogy of thinking about environmental politics, I think South Asian studies and also Latin American studies really contributed um, to the growth of that field. And most of that was outside of political science per se. It was in environmental anthropology, environmental geography, environmental history. And I would say that this collection of papers that you know you, you put together in the workshop um, really draws still on those fields because they prioritize being in the field um, mm-hmm. often for substantial periods of time. And I think that's where political science has lagged behind. We often, of course, focus on collective action problems and institutions and networks and uh, sort of the development of norms in in international and regional spheres. But we we need that sort of information from the ground. And I think that's where it remains a very interdisciplinary field. Where where I've seen most of the political science work um, before the last couple of years was on this question of like water and conflict or kind of climate change and conflict, uh, Marwa Daudi's book, um, and a few other things like that. So that was at least one area where political science seemed to be uh, engaging on the subject. Absolutely. I think international relations and global environmental politics developed much more quickly around a kind of concrete set of questions uh, regarding resources and conflict. So there is a fairly, as you know, an extensive literature on transboundary water management and river basin management uh, in Middle East political science and specifically international relations. So here, as we noted in the introduction to the papers, um, Miriam Lowy did some really great work. John Waterbury did some great work on this. Um, So there was several generations of IR scholars who have always focused on resources and their potentials for collaboration, uh, cooperation and conflict. But then I'm also reminded of some of your recent work on you know, reversing the arrows of the effects of war on the environment. And I think about the paper that we talked about on, on the podcast, 
earlier this year about Yemen and the environmental impact of Yemen. So that's something which I think is really coming in now. I think I'm seeing more studies like that. Mm -hmm. I know, I think the POMEPS collection really reflects that uh, emphasis as well. So the paper by Khalid Rawai on Iraq, uh, on Taraf Abu Hamdan, on Jordan. So we have some really interesting pieces that start to ask about what are the sort of effects of um, sort of either conflict in the case of Iraq or Jordan in the case of sort of state interventions. Um, and so I think this question is also important in thinking in, in terms of conflict related pollution. Um, I think Iraq has really brought that question to the fore and it also highlights how the papers together talk about the linkages between pollution and environmental health and public health. And I think that's a really understudied uh, area in Middle East studies as a whole, not simply in political science. So also we have you know, the paper on Kuwait that talks about the differential effects of pollution on Kuwaiti citizens and non-citizens. And I think that's also um, thinking about that environments and health don't affect everyone equally, I think has become a really important locus of research. And I think that's really well represented in these papers. Yeah, Barack Ahmed's piece on Kuwait was a really eye-opening for me, um, just showing so graphically the, the health impact of the dust storms and the incredibly you know, hot temperatures, especially on migrant laborers who are working outside in these, in these conditions. Um, and so being able to connect like the environment with um, you know, these structures of inequality and you know, these global flows of labor migration, I think this is a really important nexus to explore. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think that also becomes clear when you think about the effects of climate change. Um, so the inequality of the effects of climate change, I think is again, where a lot of um, social scientists are really interested in trying to document it. I mean, we know it's true and we can see the effects, but what was interesting about that paper is the use of public health data and epidemiology to actually show the differential risk um, in a quite robust way. Um, and I, but think I think you're right. But I think that mirrors like trends we'll see, you know, across the region and globally. You know, the the the, the wealthy will find ways to keep their their you know skyscrapers uh, air conditioned, and uh, meanwhile, a lot of people are really going to be suffering more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think even the sort of the global rise in wildfires, um, which also is not explicitly covered in this collection, but some of the contributors like Akin Kurtic, who mm -hmm. has a piece in this, um, just published in Merip, a piece on wildfires in Turkey. And I think there, you know, it's also, it, it is true that the wealthy are somewhat more insulated, but not always. And wildfires are a really good example where some of the most luxurious housing enclaves, and this is true in the U.S., are actually not immune to fire and, and nor to air pollution. So I think it's also important to think about what affects everyone and then what are the things that affect everyone unequally. And I think for, for climate change, sorry, I was just gonna say, you know, we are in this, this heat wave already. So, so South Asia and India has been seeing record heat this past week, I think, or, or close to it. Um, and I think it is, it's a huge issue um, that the Middle East will suffer from disproportionately from their lack of contribution to global warming, right? So mm -hmm. it's a regional also inequity. Well, the, the images of the dust storms in Iraq over the last week are just a pure, truly apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dust storms, I think, are one of those things that are, you know, again, absolutely empirically increasing in frequency and intensity along with flash flooding, intense heat waves, right? So a whole set of things that are no longer hypothetical or in the future, but actually unfolding for all the time, you know, right around us. And I think that's why these kind of pieces that really try to tap into lived experience in the region are also really important. Now, we have a couple of papers in the collection, uh, Dean Sharp and uh, Tobias Atombrego, um, who look at some of the efforts, uh, especially by the, the wealthier Gulf states, to, you know, kind of showcase their, um, you know, their, their attentiveness to uh, climate change and, you know, pledges of net zero and like the, the NEOM project and things like that. But there's some problems with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the problems, of course, have been linked to, and this is actually speaks to a broad theme in many of the papers, that central governments still want to dictate uh, what is adaptation, what is climate urbanism, what, sh what should be done at these local levels, yet they often lack the state capacity to do it, and also 
the knowledge and information that is generated at local levels is often stymied. Um, that being said, I think Dean Sharp's paper does a really nice job of sort of bringing out the different dimensions of this kind of move to adaptation in urban climate change. And I think he, he kind of calls attention to the fact that it might be distinctive from other parts of the world in the extent that it, right, um, that it brings in kind of financial issues and the financialization of adaptation funding through the issuing of things like green bonds or shrewd bonds. So I think that was a really interesting thing to think about is that uh, there's going to be a lot of investment flowing around around issues of sustainability, climate change, environmental adaptation, pollution. Um, and increasingly we will see states add, you know, adding to their um, capacities and financial resources to do that. I would also say that um, there's a piece in this Oxford handbook that we just finished editing on global, I mean, on comparative environmental politics where really James Meadowcroft makes the argument that the environmental state is here to stay, right? So just as we had sort of models of different types of welfare states, we also have different models for different types of environmental states. And I think one thing that the POMEX collection starts to do is really ask that question, like what do, what does the Middle East look like when we talk about what types of activities do states undertake and how do they undertake it? And, and how is that either similar or different to other parts of the world? And I think Dean Sharp's paper brings that out, some Regal's paper brings it out. But I also think the other papers do as well in the sense that often we still don't allow local provincial governments and local governments and municipalities autonomy in either decision-making or budgetary decisions that would actually allow them to more um, think about interventions that would actually respond to their needs more effectively. That's a really interesting point. Uh, uh, Dean was on our podcast last week um, and he made the point that if you move away from these like high profile showcase places like Mazdar and Nayam and start looking at things like, uh, you know, public transportation finally being, you know, put into place, metro systems and things like that. He, he was kind of pointing towards the possibility of there being some of these kinds of adaptations that might be low profile, but actually have a bigger impact, um, but it's still a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those make a lot of sense, right? Because they're win-win, both in terms of urban air quality and moving actually people effectively around and, and trying to deal with the problem of the, mo the, the motor car as the vehicle of, of, of choice, right? Because it's just not practical in, in many cities, and it's certainly ruined most American cities and their livability. So I think that he's probably right on that. So on the, um, you know, thinking about cities, you know, several of the papers look at uh, the question of trash and pollution and kind of garbage and as part of, you know, this broader sense of, you know, the politics of the environment, the lived experience that people have. Um, and as Lauren Baker, uh, former POMEPS uh, uh, assistant, um, now at Northwestern, has a really nice overview piece on the politics of trash. And you think about uh, Sophia's book and um, uh, 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 Jeremy uh, Langlois and Marwa Daoudi's paper in this collection that focus on that particular part of it as a distinct area where it's, it's, it's concrete and tangible. You know, the climate change is somewhat abstract. Um, pollution, maybe you can't quite see, but you see giant piles of trash on the street. It's something you can mobilize against or around. Yeah. Yeah, I think they represent kind of a wave of interest in, in comparative and international uh, political science as well, grappling with the issues of waste. And I think what's nice about those pieces is they start to also ask what is waste and what are resources and how are they valued? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think uh, Lauren's piece is kind of this overview of sort of thinking about that literature. There's some really great work being done by scholars of Middle in the Middle East. So particularly in Tunisia and Lebanon, right? Those are the ones where we've seen really robust case studies of you know, both protest campaigns, but also the complex, uh, I would say, center periphery relations that govern the management of waste. Um, and of course, in the study of Egypt, there's been many studies uh, that looked at the sort of role of the Zebeline in Cairo. I think that was the most studied case of, of waste management in the region. And in some ways it's still emblematic in the sense that, you know, there's this real focus on moving it to be formal, moving waste collection and recycling to be handled by multinationals, even though it didn't work very well in Cairo. Um, and, and still this sense that these communities are beneficiaries rather than integral parts of this waste um, waste kind of cycle. And I think uh, the field of comparative environmental politics and international environmental politics is really grappling with also 
how do things like waste become resources of value again as they already are? So several chapters in the Oxford Handbook actually look at the sort of um, ways that say waste pickers and recycling communities in India or in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia, what was their role? Like, do they have agency in thinking about these systems and, and why not when they don't? So I think there's a really burgeoning um, field that's really waste and discard studies more broadly. No, that's really, really interesting. Um, now, you know, one other thing you mentioned right at the beginning that one of the things which made kind of environmental anthropology and uh, and these other kind of the, the, the disciplines where they really were on the cutting edge of this was because they were kind of in the field, listening to the people on the ground and, and having that kind of research. And one of the really interesting things that jumped out at me with Khaled uh, Magezi's paper in, in this collection and also Taraf Abu Hamdan um, on, on Jordan is this notion that things which look like they're empty or look like they're like you know, wastelands actually are not necessarily that to the people who live in them. The study of, you know, this idea of what the Bade or the, the, the desert as a wasteland, really problematizing that in terms of lived experience of the communities on the ground. Yes, and actually it's interesting that um, both anthropologists, particularly working in Morocco, have really focused on this issue for a long time, also in Jordan and in Syria, because of course, again, these like large proportions of the area that are considered the sort of arid steppe. Um, and a lot of that work builds on um, Diana Davis, so the environmental historian who really sort of talked about French colonialism and the impact on the Maghreb of these kind of environmental imaginaries in which the desert needed to be greened. And I think that she, but also many other studies, sort of students of colonialism have long made that point, right? That it's the, this argument that we are going to create modern and, and landscapes. And those landscapes have a particular imaginary attached to them that's usually brought from somewhere else. And what's interesting to me, especially as someone who spent more of my field work time in Egypt, is that those imaginaries have become so rigid and ossified and still invoked continuously by post-colonial states. And I think um, I think Ekin has made this argument for Turkey. I think Murat Arcel's paper makes this argument for Turkey, Turkey as well, uh, where the sort of uh, overemphasis on the state as the agent of modernization still through reforestation and afforestation, um, much as the founding kind of members of, of Zionist movements also made these claims. So so these tropes are so durable and troubling that they have not been more thoroughly questioned. And so I think those two papers that you mentioned really do a nice job of calling out that, those, that problematic mm -hmm. vision, if you like. And then another way of getting looking at that from, again, a different perspective is with, again, with Kali Rubey's paper on, on the experience uh, of Iraqis with this kind of devastated landscape, uh, the poisoned landscape of, you know, from decades of war, depleted uranium, and, you know, kind of the soil no longer being rich and fertile, and all of this, again, this very concrete ex lived experience of people trying to grapple with things that are happening um, to them in this seemingly abstract way, but a concrete experience. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I think that also what her paper calls into attention is just how displacement is really a form of environmental degradation. Because if we don't think about the environment as something outside of us, but as something in which humans co-produce the landscape, which I think is really what environmental historians of the Middle East have long been arguing very effectively, then I think what her paper shows is the forced and repeated displacement. And then when people return, there's these new negotiations with a changed environment to which they are forced to adapt. But what I found particularly poignant in her field work and the way she reported it out was that it's not like you adapt and things go back to how they were or that they're or that you're better off, right? So there's this sense of irreversible losses, which you and I mentioned in the introduction that I think is really capturing many people's experience of environmental degradation and climate change in the Middle East, right? So, so it is it is both that we don't wanna talk about the, the Middle East in crisis all the time. That's also a trope that we don't wanna fall into. But at the same time, there is an extraordinary amount of suffering going on with the interlinkages of things like displacement, war, pollution, conflict, and climate change. And they really are having reverberating, interactive, synergistic effects from which not everyone is going to recover. 
And, and that speaks to something else that I think many of us don't know how to deal with in political science, which is the role of emotions and grief and loss. And so I think that when you talk to anyone, you know, whether it's in the US or elsewhere you know, or in the Middle East, people have a sense of grief about their climates changing. And yet we don't have a way to even think about this or articulate it very well. No, that's really interesting. Um, There's the something else about that. And, and, you know, so I was thinking about this in terms of what maybe one of the reasons why this is difficult for political scientists is that we tend to think in political time, you know, how will this, how will this affect the next election? Did this social movement succeed in getting the trash picked up, right? That a certain kind of temporality and the climate doesn't care. The environment doesn't care, right? I mean, this is a very different uh, kind of temporality, um, which just doesn't fit uh, political scientists you know, generally the way we tend to think about our institutions and outcomes and, and, and how we code things. So for example, in, you know, something like the, the papers in the collection like Lauren's or, um, or Jeremy's, which are about protest movements, it's like, you, yes, we can do that. But then I think about Aiken Kurtich's paper about just villagers waiting on a dam to be filled, right? And what this will do, it's just on a different cycle. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's the temporality question that political science has to grapple with. And then I think there's the agency question. So politics is the realm of collective uh, deliberation, collective violence, collective action, collective thinking. And so that is so focused on what humans do and how they do it and which the constraints they do it and what are the distributive outcomes from how they do it. And in this sense, environmental historians and others don't face those constraints. Right, so they feel free to sort of say, "I'm now going to write, you know, the history of animals in the Ottoman Empire," as Alan McHale did. Or um, so I think um, it's also the the nature of the field. But I think that's also okay. <laughs> so mm-hmm. maybe we can maybe we can start talking about some of the advantages of, of political science, which is that these are environmental questions are political questions. The ability to intervene in the environment in a sort of more decisive way to address emerging threats is is always a question of politics. And particularly now that environmental states and regional organizations and international multilateral organizations have a huge amount of their work focused on environmental issues. And so I think, you know, we can't be daunted by these these types of questions. We are not gonna become anthropologists overnight or historians. And I think that's okay. Because I think what we also need is actually policy relevant work We need work that speaks to people who are making decisions, whether or not they listen to us and as academics is a different question. But I do think that by focusing our research more on questions that people in the region care about and that policymakers elsewhere also should care about, we really would do them a service. Like so much of what political science does, as you mentioned early on, is focused on sort of quantitative analyses of the same data sets of conflict events and climate in say Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, there's so much done on that. And yet it's really made no impact. So what can we do differently when we start to ask these questions? And I think Marwa Dawoodi's book that just came out, you mentioned earlier, is a nice example of saying, look, the legacies of extraction for water and soil uh, in Syria were set by both the colonial period, but she focused on the Ba'athist period and saying, these things are still there, right? And so we really need to take seriously how have states intervened? How have they how have they negotiated or not with their local different local populations who are quite diverse in many places? And it's those things that also determine what is the range of sort of possible actions. So I think there's a ton of work to be done um, on really grappling with what public sector and private sector actors do. And we haven't talked about firms and markets, mm-hmm. so I'll just. There, I think there's a really interesting strand of Middle East studies that we didn't mention. Um, it's just work on, say, mining, whether it's of sand or whether it's of rare earths, which is not in the Middle East, but or whether. So there's a lot of work being done in environmental politics about commodity chains and extractivism, which really ties into earlier questions about colonialism and state formation and state legacies. So I think we still have a ton of work to do, and I think it's a really mm-hmm. exciting field. And just because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so you did just edit this um, this Oxford Handbook of uh, Comparative Environmental Politics. And, you know, so as someone whose work was in Egypt and has primarily been focused on the Middle East for your career, you know, how did that look? 
you know, in terms of looking at this globally from a MENA perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Mark. Um, so first I'll just say the reason we wanted to do this handbook is that um, in political science and international relations more generally, global environmental politics takes up, it's like the big player in the room. And so there's lots and lots of work on climate negotiations and lots of work on multilateral treaties and their implementation. And so again, a lot of work at this kind of high level of kind of state to state and multilateral interactions. And what there really hasn't been is the comparative study of how things are done around the environment. And I, and I would say that the Middle East, again, was the sort of laggard on this compared to Latin America and South Asia. Uh, but interestingly, the Middle East and China and, and sort of uh, also smaller states and because we're thinking about how smaller states are really kind of at the vanguard now. So we start to see really interesting books coming out that are comparing experience among big developing countries with each other. So Brazil and China, for instance. Um, and so we no longer think about global environmental politics and just look to the EU, which is the way that much of the field evolved um, as seen as the leader of global and sort of um, environmental action. And I think this is where the papers, the POMEPS papers are really interesting as well, because I think they start to gesture to the fact that there's so much going on in the region um, that is new actually, and, and hasn't been a focus of research before. So when we look kind of broadly at the field, um, we do see a couple trends. So one trend is to take urban environmental issues more seriously and the way they're governed at different levels um, and nested in, in quite different um, multi-scalar uh, systems of governance so that a city in South Africa is not going to handle its uh, issues the same way as Bombay. But yet they're also in networks that are sharing information. And so there's a lot of really interesting work about sort of how do subnational units share information and expertise and what are the limitations on doing that? And then we also just see a lot more focus on again, sort of including cases from the quote unquote global South. Um, I think the problematic terminology, whether we're talking about developing countries or low income countries or middle country, we can, that's a whole different debate, but there's a lot more diversity of scholars and scholarship that is being explicitly sort of done. And I think that's of great sort of significance to the field. It no longer is really Europe and America focused. Well, I mean, it's just looking around at, uh, you know, what's happening right now in the Gulf, in Iraq, in Iran. I mean, everything, you know, so you know, there's been all this kind of global panic about the impact of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine on global food supplies, and especially in the Middle East, which is highly dependent on Ukrainian and Russian grains and wheat. Um, and yet one of the things which is interesting to ask is how did it get that way? You know, Iraq and Iran's agriculture has been decimated by, by climate change and by heat and, and, and water loss. And, you know, you can go around the region and kind of see these processes by which countries which were, you know, breadbaskets at an earlier time in history are now utterly dependent on these food imports. And what does that mean for uh, their politics and their institutions? Right, and that's why I think that the sort of correctives to the story of you know the drought caused the collapse of agriculture are really important because as you just said, it was wrapped up in all of these other processes. So for instance, for, for Iraq, they are facing absolute water scarcity in agriculture, partly because of climate change, so less water flowing through, but also because of extensive dam building on the upper reaches of the rivers. So it, Turkey's expansive dam building is causing shortages downstream, even as they insist there's still releasing the same amounts, which they do when they have enough and they don't when they don't. Um, so we have, again, the regional interdependencies that are really important. Um, the I think food, the Renaissance food, dam impact on Egypt. Exactly, exactly. And that's one in which, um, you know, the claims that it will be only used for hydropower is kind of strictly true, but the impacts of sort of long-term on Egypt of just the combination of basically water scarcity and increased dam building are very, very real. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, just to add on to food supplies, I think there's been a really interesting um, sort of handful of scholars who have worked a really long time on agricultural issues uh, and made these arguments that, you know, neoliberalism did not benefit small farmers. <laughs> Most agriculturalists are still nomadic, small or pastoralists, and we have to revisit those ways of doing agriculture. But the problem is that those ways of doing agriculture will not meet food demands because of population growth. 
-hmm. So I think that demography is the question that Middle East scholars have not been wanting to talk about because it, it's been talked about in such a negative political way. It was used in so many negative environmental imaginaries, right? That too many people led to either overgrazing or too much food consumption and therefore, you know, we're in this dire crisis. And I understand those critiques, but by the same point, it is not possible given the sort of water resources of the region, given the sort of land resources of the region, we, we actually have to grapple with the fact that rapid population growth is part of environmental degradation. And how we do that in a kind of um, politically and culturally informed way, I think is gonna be really important. But I think it's a huge gap in the way environmental politics uh, talks about it. The same in the handbook. We have some critiques of the imaginaries about population growth, but we don't actually really grapple with what does the shrinking of the biodiverse parts of the planet that are completely and continuously encroached upon by human action, and also this scale of what climate change has, is going to do to everyone uh, in terms of changing basically species compositions and ecosystem compositions. It, it, is, it is a radical experiment in a man-made transformation of a planet. And I think we don't, we can't look at it at that scale. And so I guess the last thing that I, I might wanna comment about is that it's really hard for us to keep in mind the local effects and then the regional effects, but then what's happening com sort of a commonly across. And I think there's some useful teaching tools, like there's an Atlas of Environmental Injustice and Justice that's been up for a couple of uh, you know, years that people in the Middle East have contributed to. There's also maps of global wildfires where you can see like the where on the planet is burning at a given time. You can look at the global heat distribution maps, but it's very hard to convey for us in our research scholarship and teaching the sort of scale and magnitude and intensifying acceleration of these interlocking environmental problems. I don't want to sound like Cassandra from the 1970s, but at the same time, I think they might have just been a few decades too early, right? So. Well, it's, it's hard to believe that this isn't going to continue moving ever more into the center of, uh, of you know, the scholarship, um, but compared to politics, IR, and everything else, just because it is uh, happening at such a high magnitude. Um, it's been it's great to talk to Jeannie Sowers. Thank you for uh, working with me on this Poll Maps collection. Um, and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It was a great pleasure to work with you and all the scholars at the workshop. It was a really fascinating set of discussions, and I'm really so excited about these papers. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Mariam Salehi of the Free University of Berlin, author of the new book, Transitional Justice in Process, Plans and Politics in Tunisia, just published by Manchester University Press. Uh, Mariam, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mark. So tell us about this book and how you came to write it and kind of what you were trying to achieve. <clears throat> so um, the research for the book has been done um, while the transitional justice process in Tunisia was um, developing. So um, I did my first field research in Tunisia in spring 2014, and that was basically um, the point in time where the transitional justice law had just been passed by parliament, but um, the central institution of the transitional justice process, the Truth and Dignity Commission, hasn't started its work. So I was in Tunisia at the point in time where truth commissioners were nominated. And so I, I went into the field with a bit of a different idea of what I wanted to research. So I thought that I would um, yeah, ask my interview partners mainly about trials that had been happening um, since the ouster of, of, of Ben Ali in 2011. And um, then um, while I was yeah, starting to do research on, on transitional justice as a broader concept, um, my interview partners were pointing me to um, get more into the direction of what was happening while I was there. They were asking me, um, like, Mariam, why are you asking about these things that have happened, I don't know, three years ago? Why aren't you asking about the things that are happening now? And that was, of course, um, a bit challenging to find a research design that would allow me to do that. Um, but that led me to in the end, ask a very simple question of um, how has the Tunisian transitional justice process developed and why? And I hope that I managed to, um, to show the dynamics uh, of this process and the different characteristics um, 
and and try to um, trace the process without doing like a process tracing design because I didn't have an endpoint that I was. Uh, yeah, and, and that's very interesting because it's actually a, a good thing because often you know we have we we already know the outcome and then we reason our way backwards and you had to figure it out in real time just like Tunisians did. Um, yeah, and that um, I mean I think it was challenging, but it was also um, exciting and interesting. And um, so what I did then was that I um, was trying to work out characteristics of the process and. Um, um, I, I, I tried several um, theoretical um, approaches that, that I thought could be helpful. And in the end, I, I ended up using a process sociological approach to structure my data um, or I, like in conversation with a data develop an, an analytical framework. And um, so what I would say, what characterizes the process um, has been the, yeah, the interplay between um, planned processes of change and um, unplanned uh, political and social dynamics, then, then that it was um, essentially nonlinear, that there were trends and counter trends of things happening sometimes simultaneously, then the, the international interconnectedness, because especially transitional justice has been shaped um, significantly by the involvement of, of international actors as well. Um, but not only, but in in interplay with what domestic actors wanted, basically. Mm -hmm. And then um, I would say that um, the process has been shaped significantly by conflict and friction, uh, both in a productive and in a disruptive sense. One of the things which is very interesting is that you show how the very meaning of transitional justice, what, what's it, what it's for and what is the purpose that it's supposed to play was very much in contestation throughout this period. Walk us through that a little bit and what we mean by transitional justice and what Tunisians meant by transitional justice. Yeah, this is actually super interesting because, um, I mean, when I went into the field, uh, I um, I had quite a, yeah, or well, I assumed to be there um, an understanding of transitional justice that was oriented at the measures that are usually um, understood as transitional justice so trials, but then of course the, um, yeah, the, the truth commission that at that point in time um, was this still to start and reparation um, measures and these kind of things. But um, what I could then um, tease out of my data was that there was a shift in understanding that at the beginning, the understanding of transitional justice also, um, yeah, was, corresponding to basically those measures um the, and the then the understanding shift mm -hmm. the, the international yeah, standards yeah no no but, but basically the the measures in itself so the trials that were domestic trials that they would be subsumed under transitional justice and then the, um there was a shift in understanding that um assumed that these measures they weren't like really transitional justice anymore but then just what was planned under the label of a transitional justice process was understood to be transitional justice. So um, I had conversations where people were telling me transitional justice hasn't even started yet, although there had already been um, trials taking place um, dealing with uh, yeah, violations during the revolution, but also um, economic crimes. And also there have had already been like ad hoc reparation measures um, or compensation measures uh, <clears throat> being introduced. And, and then at some point that wasn't um, yeah, included in, in the common understanding of transitional justice anymore. Then that understanding corresponded to an institutionalized process with like um, the lawmaking process and then what was coming out of the lawmaking process and, and the institutions that were um, then um, established like the to the dignity commission as the central institution of the transitional justice process yeah. and the way the way you describe this um, it, it's very deeply interconnected with politics and with, with with the political context of what's going on as opposed to this you know kind of more uh you know you know maybe normative or kind of you know, institutional type of approach to transitional justice. So could you walk us through a little bit of the politics of, of, of the Truth and Dignity Commission and of transitional justice more broadly? Yeah, I think this is actually one of the um, 
one of the main arguments of the books that how transitional justice came into being in Tunisia and to look exactly as it looked then um, is, has been deeply connected to, to politics and to political conflicts as well. And um, coming from the transitional justice literature, um, there has often been an assumption, and, and this is an assumption that I often was confronted with at conferences, for example, where people would ask me like, oh, but isn't this all introduced top down by the so-called justice industry? Um, do Tunisians actually want this um, this process and, and in that way? And I, I mean, I wasn't really happy with this um, framing because this was not what I was seeing in my research and uh, i would say i mean of course uh, not all tunisians want the same right but there are definitely actors in tunisia who want to this process and to, to want it um and, and wanted it to look in a certain way and also to correspond to international um standards and um to uh, yeah um have this like broad mandate which is huge right going going back to um half a year pre-independence and, and tackling um, not only political human rights violations and, and bodily integrity um, um, violations, but also socioeconomic crimes because, um, and, and, and having like a truth commission and specialized chambers in the Tunisian court system and the reparations fund. Um, so this corresponds to, um, yeah, the dominant idea of a good, in quotation marks, transitional justice process and a holistic approach, but there were Tunisian actors who wanted this, and um, so and and to whom um, who, whose political interest that served, because um, yeah, they um, they had an interest of of like covering also the area, for example. I mean, there were others who weren't satisfied with that, who who criticized that and said like, oh, we we shouldn't have gone back um, mm -hmm. so far, for example, and then um, it was very important to have the socioeconomic aspect included because it actually fits um, grievances of Tunisians. And um, it would have been hard to, to explain why this should have, um, should have been left out. And um, so like from, from, the, from the outset, um, how the, um, the process was designed definitely um, was influenced by um, who had the political power at that point in time to influence um, this design process. I mean, the Ministry of Human Rights and Transitional Justice was involved in the law drafting process. And um, this was um, led by <clears throat> an another politician, Samedilo, um, who was the, min the like, mm -hmm. Minister for Human Rights and Transitional Justice. And, and then later on, um, this whole nomination procedure of truth commissioners um, that was um, happening in parliament. And that was not um, necessarily a, a given from the beginning. So what I heard um, from my interview partners, both from civil society, but also from, from the international um, transitional justice professionals is that they would have preferred a nomination procedure where um, civil society would have had a say in who becomes a truth commissioner. And then parliament before passing the law decided, no, 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 we keep the prerogative of nominating truth commissioners to ourselves and then some like several of my interview partners said that this was already like a deeply political negotiation process of different parties and factions could then actually um, yeah um, nominate their people into the commission and um, this also then led to um, the um, broader impression that the commission was political from the very beginning and this is an impression the commission never really recovered from I would say um having this um yeah having having this assumption um floating around that the commission is actually deeply political and an instrument of politics as well it, it got very badly caught up in the polarization around anahta and islamism in general um yeah although i would say it's probably a bit more complex with regard to um, cleavages. Um, and I mean, of course, this is something um, 
you you often hear and i've been in conversations sometimes i've been asked like oh why are you researching the truth commission this is an islamist institution you you shouldn't be dealing with that i mean that was a conversation and i said like i mean first of all uh, of course i can research it even if it would would be but then also i would question um that assumption um there let let me put it like that so some parts of um secularist civil society if you want to label it like that they withdrew from engagement with the truth commission um after this move of um parliament nominating um truth commissioners and and um so which then meant that um also more islamist oriented civil society I was actually more engaged um, at that point in time. So and I, I had um, had some interviews with uh, some of these actors who were initially involved and then withdrew um, from engagement um, later on. And then they said that was probably a mistake. We should have we should have stayed engaged and we should have like make our voices heard. Um, right. Um, but um, <clears throat> then you you still had um, yeah, if we want to want to stick with this dichotomy of, of like Islamists and secularists, which I, I don't know whether uh, we should, but um, I mean, if, if you look at the public hearings, for example, um, the Truth Commission actually managed to um, bring in a broad range of, of, of actors um, to um, to tell their stories and and um, uh, like quite a few of them actually quite far away from from um, being Islamist. I mean, I, I was present at the first public hearings and there, you, for example, you had Mijé um, Bernakash, um, the Tunisian writer, um, Marxist writer, um, um, alongside um, some some of the yeah mothers of the marches and wounded of the revolution. And um, so, um, and then there, there was, for example, one public hearing session which was dealing with like um, uh, cyber repression, or I don't know whether this is the right term, but but like internet repression, these kind of things. Um, and and there you you had like journalists speaking, and so there was an engagement and also um, like a desire to make this a success also beyond the Islamic spectrum. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Islamist generally did suffer quite a bit more at the hands of Ben Ali. I mean, there were a lot of victims, um, you know, there to tell their stories. Uh, uh, there's the figure that's always mentioned about 60,000 files uh, were yeah. brought forward. And, um, and so there, there, there was a lot of, um, a lot of claims to be made on being a victim of, of state violence. Definitely. And um uh, and and I, I would say that there are different um, that the Truth Commission actually um, managed to address uh, quite a diverse range of, of victims or potential victims. Um, I mean, um, of course, you had the Islamist victims, and then then also um, going even back further in in history, like um, those from the Yusufist period. But but then you. Um, Yet in these categories of, of, of victims, uh, there, there were also um, there were were others, and in, in the end, for example, um, most of the civil society actors decided um, to also encourage. I mean, also even the labor union to encourage their members if they felt victimized to submit their files. And um, what what I heard was that um, even though. Um, there was quite a bit of skepticism towards the institution that um, um, it was still seen as an opportunity um, that could potentially, um, yeah, get the people something. I mean, the two commission also issued reparation decisions, for example, and although nothing has been paid by now, and the question is whether it actually will be, um, I think um, everyone wanted to have the chance to, um, uh, yeah, or not to miss a chance if, if there would be, um, for example. And um, and then of course there there, there are quite a, like quite a bit of discussions about how how things were locked in in um, 
in like um, certain like in the software, for example, or how 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 victims were labeled, and and one of the the issues with um, is, for example, that um, there is now the accusation that sexual violence often hasn't been labeled as such, but as torture, which would then deprive um, people of um, points in the reparation uh, calculations and that they would uh, get less than they would have if it would have been locked as, as sexual violence and not as torture. So the, there are quite of, of like these quarrels that the that continue with regard to like who is a victim and in what way and what follows up from that. Yeah. Now, to the extent that um, the, the Truth and Dignity Commission was aimed at members of the old regime, of the Ben Ali regime, um, kind of the political context matters quite a bit then when Nidatunis, which included quite a few members of, of the old regime, um, assumes the presidency. Um, and so, in a sense, that shifts the politics of this quite a bit. It shifts the politics because suddenly, um, or not suddenly, I mean, there was a process leading up to that. But um, at, at that point in time, I mean, it was a, it's an, it's a state institution, but the state institution wasn't interested, uh, was, wasn't in the interest of those um, leading the state at that point in time anymore. So um, this meant suddenly uh, that um, there was, yeah, the political will was not there anymore, um, that that this was something that um, should go forward. With, that also meant that the international actors, for example, uh, found themselves in the position that um, they didn't change their absolute position about the Truth Commission, but suddenly they had to, um, they couldn't work with the government anymore because the government changed uh, their position. Um, and it, it also meant that um, the provision of resources, for example, didn't go entirely smoothly. Uh, smoothly. Um, then, um, it, but, but I would say because it was institutionalized in quite a strong way, because I mean, the um, transition justice law was what the transition justice process was anchored in the in, in the institution and and there was a law and um, because of this quite strong institutionalization um, it was actually not possible to um, get rid of it easily and um, to undermine it uh, completely I mean there, there were some um, attempts uh, some more subtle some some less subtle to uh, yeah um, abolish the truth commission for example or and, and then the the entire transitional justice process but um, that never um, actually really worked out um, yeah so yeah. And, and I would say that that this is um, I, I would explain it um, at least to some degree due to the strong institutionalization and that um, the process developed some kind of an imminent dynamic so that it was not really possible to, to entirely um, stop it. So I was in Tunisia around the time that uh, President Asipsi uh, introduced this economic reconciliation, the, uh, you know, the kind of shifting mm -hmm. the focus of, of the Truth and Dignity Commission, working mm -hmm. outside those institutions. And then uh, Manish Basam, the social movement, the protest yeah. erupt kind of in opposition to that. Now, what do you think about that in terms of this more institutionalized process that you're describing? <clears throat> um, I mean, I haven't looked at Manish Basam in depth. I mean, of course, um, it played a role for, for what I was researching, but um, it was quite, I would say it's quite interesting because um, one narrative would be like, yeah, that the Truth Commission actually, or the transition justice process is so implicated in politics and that there were like so many internal quarrels and that it's not actually like a trusted institution. And so nobody really wanted it anymore at some point. And um, having this, um, popular mobilization also by younger people shows that this is not entirely true. So there has, um, people have been seeing some value um, in, uh, in this process and uh, at least in the way that they um, didn't want to have the countermeasure. 
right? And um, so, and I, I um, found it quite remarkable how this mobilization then in combination with the Tooth Commission just carrying on its work and um, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. um, also to some degree, for example, through the public hearings, being able to show that there is some value in its work, um, how this then, um, uh, yeah, basically led to the situation in which eventually um, the commission could end its work um, and publish a final report. I mean, um, how good that is or how bad is it? It's a different question, but... Um, uh, yeah, so I, I would say this interplay between having support uh, on the street and, and having the institutionalized um, uh, yeah, things mm -hmm. uh, in place, um, that definitely helped, yeah. One of the big themes that runs through your book is the role of kind of the international community and this kind of, uh, you mentioned them before, the justice industry, um, and, but, but, Right from the very beginning, there was a pretty strong role for some of the big uh, international NGOs in terms of promoting and training and helping to support the transitional justice process. And you, you seem to have a somewhat ambivalent uh, relationship with that um, with that part of the transitional justice, um, you know, kind of process. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you say that and that this ambivalence come through. Um, I would say that, I mean, as I said at the beginning, the process wouldn't have looked the way it looked without the international engagement and also the early engagement. And, um, but, but then on the other hand, I would also say that there was not a top-down imposition of mm -hmm. how it looked. Um, and, um, Tunisian actors definitely um, were, I mean, they adapted the concepts, they got through training and advice, and, and they, they also, um, yeah, molded them in a way that it fit their purposes and also their political interests. And, um, and, and, and also my interview partners, um, they would also express this ambivalence, and and if it comes through, then then um, I hope that it's also through that. So there, um, I mean, there was lots of criticism with regard to how, I mean, some of the UN agencies, for example, um, um, how they were involved, and and that had something to do with with some practical issues, for example, like oh, they would give us contradicting advice, for example. Um, or um, they wouldn't check with whom they were working. So um, they they would just work with anyone who would come without vetting them and seeing whether um, these actors hadn't been involved in the old regime or these kind of things. Um, I generally uh, got more um, or yeah more positive um, statements about the International Center for Transitional Justice, which is also interesting because it's also a very heavily um, criticized institution. And, um, but my interview partners would usually say like, um, yeah, they, um, they would give us support if we ask for, for it, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and I also, I mean, my interview partners from the so-called justice industry, they weren't always happy with how the Tunisian actors decided to do things, right? I, I mean, um, so about the law, for example, um, I mean, so they were saying like, yeah, I mean, we can work with this law, right? If we, if we would have imagined a, a perfect law, then it would have looked different in, in some instances, but we can work with it. And it's good that we have it. and. Um, and we, we shouldn't um, be too ambitious in like trying to get a better law because this is what some civil society actors sometimes were proposing, or oh, we should get a new law, a better law, because they said like, we assume that we won't get another law at all. So we should rather work with it. And so, um, yeah, this ambivalence definitely, I would say um, came through in my um, in my interviews in, in in the observations that I did in like workshops and trainings, and um, I'm happy if it comes through in the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, one last question then, um, kind of 
where do you where what do you hope that scholars of Tunisia or of transitional justice take away from the book? What do you hope the impact of your findings will be? Um, what do, oh, that's a good question and a hard question. Um, I mean, I, I I hope that they uh, that they take away that um, yeah, the story is not 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 simple. And um, both with regard to the political developments and with the transitional justice process, and um, neither in in that um, yeah that it has all failed as is the prominent narrative narrative now, or as it was like a a couple of years ago that it has all been going great. So, but that, but there there were actually like lots of political struggles and and contingency and um that um yeah a variety of actors um included in in shaping um these developments and um and i think this is what i um yeah would like readers to take away well, great. Well, thanks, Mariam. Uh, congratulations on the book and thanks for joining us on the program. Yay!